Well, it's great to be with you. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Joshua Coleman. Um, my wife grew up in this church. Uh, my parents-in-law uh, go to this church, and um, Tim Fox uh, did my wedding. So uh, I love being uh, at CTK. I love getting to worship with you every chance I get. Um, so um, glad to be with y'all. Uh, as we come to the word of the Lord, we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, um, it would be great if you could turn in them to Zechariah chapter 3. And, um, you know, I was, I was talking to one of my seminary professors um, when he knew I was going to be preaching on uh, one of the Old Testament prophets. And he asked me, uh, which one are you preaching on? And I said, Zechariah. And he said, are you preaching on chapter 3? And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he goes, Joshua, son, I think that's the best picture of the gospel in the whole Old Testament. And he said it like, just like that. Um, and... I really think he might be right. You know, like, this is a beautiful, stunning picture of God's grace and his mercy. And really what we're going to see is this is a picture of God's justifying work. That God justifies sinners and redeems them to himself. And um, so I, it's, it's really just a stunning picture of God's grace. There, you'll hear sometimes people say things like, uh, the Old Testament God is a God of wrath, and the New Testament God is a God of love, and they try to pit these two against each other. And when you hear that, you know those people have not read the Bible. Okay, because, and we're going to see that here. This is an Old Testament passage that we're reading. But it is one of the clearest pictures of the new covenant, the new covenant promise of justification and of mercy that you'll see in the whole, in the whole Bible, really. Um, and I think definitely in the whole Old Testament. So um, I will read this passage for us, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon. So hear now the word of the Lord. Um, the holy, inspired, sufficient word of God from Zechariah 3. It says this. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with, and they clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on a stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor and come, invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and it's given to us in love for our good. Um, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. And the preaching of it. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence today. Um, and Lord, um, 
as, as we look at your word, I just ask that you would uh, show us ourselves in this passage. And more than that, I ask that you would show us Jesus in this passage. Lord, I ask that you would help us to see that um, even in the midst of our sin and our, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, yet you are a covenant God who remains faithful to his people and who redeems sinners and saves them for himself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just to set the context of this passage a little bit, um, we're in Zechariah, and this is one of the, the final books in your Old Testament. It's uh, the second to last book, and this is set during the time period of the return. So uh, the people of Israel had um, turned away from God time and again. Uh, they had had many kings who had worshipped idols, and many of their people had begin, had begun to worship idols. And so... Uh, because of this, God had sent prophets to warn the people. Uh, again and again, he kept sending prophets to warn them, if you don't turn back from your idolatry, uh, you're going to experience the exile. You're going to experience a uh, covenant curse. In the book of Deuteronomy, that has the list of the blessings and the, and the list of the curses for those who keep the covenant and those who don't keep the covenant, the worst covenant curse in the book of Deuteronomy at the end is exile. And the people of God... Uh, they didn't listen to God's prophets. Uh, the kings didn't listen to the prophets. And so eventually, um, God did keep his word. He exiled the people. Uh, he allowed Babylon to come in. Neb- he gave Israel into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And the southern kingdom of Judah was exiled. And they're exiled for 70 years. And then God uh, brings about the emperor of Persia, Cyrus the Great, and he, uh, God allows him to send Israel back, back to Jerusalem. And so this is a grace of God. But these people that Zechariah is prophesying to, they're in like the first generation of people who have returned to the land after the exile. And they're probably wondering, is Yahweh still our God? Right? He took, he destroyed the temple, uh, we no longer have a monarch. We're now um, a vassal state underneath the Persian Empire. Is Yahweh still our God? Does he still love us? He's still there, but we broke his covenant, right? We experienced covenant curse. We were exiled. So does Yahweh still love us? Is Yahweh still our God? And I, I think if you're a Christian long enough, you, you go through times in your own life where you begin to feel like the countenance of God has turned from me. I, I don't know where he is. Um, I'm speaking from my own experience, but I bet some of you have experienced this too. There are times in your life when you look for God and you see, it seems that you can't find him. Or you experience those dark nights of the soul. And I think that's where the people of Israel are now. They're in that time and that place where they're wondering, has God abandoned us? Does he hear our prayers? And that's the time when God gives Zechariah this vision to give to the people of Israel. To remind them who their God is. Because ultimately, their hope is not in their works. It's not in how good they are. It's in how faithful their covenant God is to them. Second Timothy reminds us, even when we are faithless, yet God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so, this is just a beautiful picture of the character of our God. That he is a covenant God who redeems sinners. And so... Uh, in, in, in the beginning of this passage, you begin and, and you essentially see um, a courtroom set up, uh, right? So the, the three, sorry, I'll back up. The three headings we're going to look at this passage under, we're going to see the courtroom, the clothes, and then the coming king. 
Okay, courtroom, clothes, coming king. And in the first verse, what you really see is a courtroom set up. Okay, you have Joshua the high priest, and essentially Joshua is the defendant. He's on trial. Okay, and then you have Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Satan is basically playing the role of uh, a prosecuting attorney. His job is to try to um, get the judge to pass the verdict of guilty on Joshua. And then you have this mysterious figure, the angel of the Lord, who's acting as the judge in this courtroom. So you have the defendant, you have the, uh, the accuser, and then you have the judge. And what's really interesting is Joshua, it says here that he's the high priest. And so what that means is Joshua isn't the only one on trial here in this passage. Actually, everyone that Joshua represents is on trial. Because the high priest stands for the people. He's a representative for the people. And if you read the Bible, what you find out is, as it goes with the high priest, that's how it goes with the people. And so Joshua is their representative before the holy judge. And so the verdict that's given to Joshua is the verdict that God gives to all of his people, all of Israel. And, I mean, you can imagine being in Joshua's position, right? It says he's clothed in filthy garments, So he's the high priest, but he's standing in the throne room of heaven. He's standing before the judgment seat of the Holy One of God, and he's clothed in unclean garments. As the high priest, you would never enter the temple without cleansing yourself. Because if you were to be ceremonially unclean in the presence of God, that was a death sentence. And so for Joshua, he's he's in a very scary position here. And if you were Zechariah, if you put yourself in the position of Zechariah, he's watching this. He's watching Joshua, his representative, standing before the holy judge, and he's ceremonially unclean. He's clothed in filthy garments. And then not only are they garments that are filthy, not only is he ceremonially unclean, but we actually find from the passage that these garments are an outward picture of his inward heart state. Uh, it, It calls these garments his iniquity. And so in this vision, in this image, what we see is that... uh, Joshua is actually standing before the holy judge robed in his sin. And so he's deserving of condemnation here. He's entered unclean and unrighteous before the righteous judge. And Satan stands to accuse him. And that's who Satan is, right? Satan is the accuser. Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue. And he's like a roaring lion. He seeks to devour God's people. And Satan is a hypocrite to be here as an accuser because Satan is the one who first tempted Adam and Eve to sin in the beginning. But if you're a Christian long enough, you know that when sin tempts you, it says, do this, it will feel good, it will, it will lead you where you want to go. And then as soon as you give in to that sin, it turns around and accuses you. How could you? Right? And so Satan is a hypocrite because he, he tries to entice us with sin and then he turns around and accuses us and says, now you're worthy of condemnation because you've sinned. And so that's the position that Joshua is in here in this passage. He's standing before the holy judge with Satan at his right hand, slinging his darts and his, his, his lies and also even his truths, right? Because Satan is saying he's guilty and Joshua is guilty. He's, he's clothed in his own guilt. Imagine what it would be like to be in that position. Charles Spurgeon, uh, speaking about this passage, he says this, Truly, dear friends, if Satan wants to accuse us, any page of our history will do. Any hour of any day will furnish him with material for his charges. Yesterday you were impatient. The day before that, you were proud. 
Another day you were slothful, and on another day angry. Oh, what a den of unclean birds the human heart is. If the old accuser wants reason for accusation, he may indeed find as many as he wills, and continue to accuse as long as ever he pleases, for we are all together as an unclean thing. As Romans 3 reminds us, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as Romans 6 tells us, the wages of our sin is death. And so if, imagine yourself in this position, with Satan at your right hand, saying guilty, guilty, guilty. And then read verse 2. And this is the gospel. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand that has been plucked from the fire? And so we see that it's actually, it's not Joshua and all those whom he represents that are rebuked here. It's actually Satan that's rebuked. And Joshua is acquitted. The verdict is not guilty from the holy judge. And that's a pretty stunning thing. That, that, that if you were an Old Testament uh, believer, and you, if you were Zechariah watching this, you wouldn't have a category for this. Because the, the high priest cannot enter the presence of God in, garbed in unclean vestments. And yet the holy judge looks at him and says, not guilty. And we're given two reasons that he's acquitted. One is the choice of God, and one is uh, that he's been plucked out of the fire. So it, it says there in verse 2, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It's not based on anything Joshua's done. It's not based on anything that the people that Joshua represents have done. He's clothed in his sin. He's clothed in his iniquity. He hasn't done anything to merit this. It's actually purely based on the gracious choice of, of the king, of God. God chooses to save him. And then, uh, after saying that Jerusalem has been chosen, it also says uh, they've been plucked out of the fire. So the people of Jerusalem, they've just come back from exile. They were in, they had experienced for a time, covenant curse. They had experienced the wrath of God for their sin. But now what's being revealed is that punishment was not forever. They haven't been fully cut off. It was rather a discipline. It was a fatherly discipline. But God is still faithful to his covenant people. And so purely based on his divine prerogative, he has snatched them out of the fire. They're like a, a twig that's been placed in a bonfire, but snatched out before it could be burned up. And so the holy judge, uh, the angel of the Lord says, not guilty. Now, there are the two characters, Satan and, and Joshua, we've already talked about, but we should spend a second talking about this character, the angel of the Lord, because this is a mysterious figure in the Bible. All throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord keeps showing up again and again. Um, when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22, it's the angel of the Lord that cries out to him, stop, God has provided a substitute, and he provides the ram. Uh, in When Jacob meets God after Bethel, uh, the place where the ladder comes down from heaven, uh, he meets the angel of the Lord, and then he says, I am the God of Bethel. Which is sort of strange for an angel to say, I am the God of Bethel, which is where the, the ladder came down from heaven. Um, this angel of the Lord also appears to Moses in the burning bush. 
and says, take off your sandals because you stand on holy ground. It's the angel of the Lord, if you go back and read that passage, that speaks from the burning bush. Um, Also, it's the angel of the Lord that appears to Joshua right before the people enter into the promised land. He appears as the commander of the armies of heaven. And Joshua says, are you with us or against us? And the angel of the Lord says, no, I'm the commander of the, king of, of, of the armies of heaven. Basically saying, it's not whether I'm on your side, but rather you're on my side that counts here, Joshua. And then Joshua falls on his face and worships the angel of the Lord. And usually in the Bible, when you worship an angel, they say, don't worship me. They say, get up, I'm just a servant like you, don't worship me. But what's interesting is when Joshua falls on his face to worship the angel of the Lord, the angel says, take off your sandals because you stand on holy ground. So this angel of the Lord, he's, he's a mysterious figure. Uh, and, and theologians differ on who they think he is. Um, some people think he's just an angel. Um, but I don't think that. And I think I stand with the majority of the church fathers and the, the history of Christian theology when I say this, I believe that it's Jesus. Calvin believed that. Calvin said There's, there can be no doubt that this angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity. And uh, if, if you're not convinced of that, if you think, well, you know, maybe it's just an angel, maybe it's Jesus, who knows, uh, I, I want to take you to 2 Corinthians 5. This is why I'm so convinced that the angel of the Lord in this passage of Zechariah 3 is actually pre-incarnate Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Because in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And so, imagine the despair and the terror if you were in the position of Joshua, and then you look at the holy judge, and it's Jesus looking at you. That's what I, that's what I really believe is happening in this passage is that when, when the angel of the Lord says, today I have taken your iniquity from you, I think that's Jesus, because Jesus is the judge. I think it's pre-incarnate Jesus. And what, if, if that's true, what that means is he is promising to go to the cross in this moment. When he takes away the unclean garments, and he gives clean garments to Joshua, the high priest, he's promising, I'll take his place. There's an exchange, there's a swap that's happening here. Right? Because in order for Joshua, the high priest's unclean clothes to be taken away, in order for him to be clothed in clean garments, someone else had to be clothed in unclean garments. At the cross, Jesus was treated as sin. He was, he was treated as though he was unclean. He was treated as though he was a sinner, so that we might be treated as those who are righteous. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel. This is a picture in the Old Testament of justification. This is like as clear of a picture as there is in the whole Bible of justification, not by works, but by grace. Um, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you hear the, the voice of condemnation, and you will, right? Because Satan is seeking to devour you. There will be times in your life when you hear that voice of condemnation. And you begin to wonder, am I actually a Christian? Am I actually saved? I've, I've sinned so much. But where, where sin abounds, grace abounds still more. The reason that we can be assured of our salvation is because our unclean garments have been taken away and they've been placed on Jesus at the cross. And we've been clothed in clean garments, not our own. 
just like Joshua in this passage. And so the verdict is not guilty. And Satan is rebuked, not us. Uh, Romans 9, verses 14 through 16 says this, What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Peter says uh, in, in 1 Peter 1, to God's elect, which is another word for chosen people, to God's elect, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ through the sprinkling of his blood. If you're in Christ today, then you've been clothed with pure garments, not your own. You've been chosen. And when you hear the voice of condemnation in your head, this is where you, this is where you set your mind. This is, where you, this is what you point yourself towards. When you need to preach the gospel to yourself in those moments, Remember Zechariah 3, that you've been clothed in righteous garments. You're no longer clothed in the guilty garments that you once walked in. So we've seen the courtroom, and we've seen that the verdict is not guilty. Now we move on to the clothes, right? Um, And we've already touched on this some, but it says in verse 3, And Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And he said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now in this passage, it's actually, it's Zechariah who cries out. He sees what the angel of the Lord has done, and then Zechariah cries out, Let them put a clean turban on his head as well. And when I started researching this passage, I thought that was kind of weird. Um, the angel of the Lord takes away the filthy garments and clothes him in righteous garments. And then Zechariah, who at th- to this point has been a bystander, he shouts out, hey, put a turban on his head too. And I was like, what's the point of that? And I did a little bit more research. And what I realized is the turban is a symbol of the high priest. And so what Zechariah is really saying here when he says, put a clean turban on his head, is he's saying us too. Not just Joshua but let this be for all of us, right? Because as it goes with the high priest, it goes with the people. And so he's saying, make him our high priest. Like, make sure that he's known as the high priest. And so there's a double grace here. There's a grace in that he's clothed in uh, pure vestments, but there's also a grace in that he's given this turban, which symbolizes that not only he, but all of the people of Israel are vindicated in this moment. And it also symbolizes that God has reinstated his priesthood, right? Because the priesthood was destroyed when they went into the exile. Now they've come back and God has reinstated Joshua as his high priest. This tells you he is still faithful to his covenant people. Even after the exile, God remains faithful. And so, um, one other thing that I want to say before we move on to the next point is, um, you may have uh, some friends, some people around you may say this. They may say that um, grace is the sort of thing that you need to keep getting more and more of. Um, and and, and they, they, you may hear grace taught as something that's sort of like a substance that needs to be infused, right? It's like you get a, a finite amount of grace, and then once your sins eat away at it, you need more grace, and you keep doing that. And there are certain things that people will teach that you need to do in order to get more grace. 
And that, that's, that's called grace by infusion. That's not what's in this passage. There's nothing about that at all. I don't know where that comes from, but that's not from the Bible. This is clearly a different picture of what grace is like. This is a picture of grace by imputation, right? Imputation is that you're given a righteousness that's not your own and that it's a once and done act, right? That's why Jesus at the cross said it is finished because grace isn't a substance, it's a disposition, Grace isn't something that needs to be given to you over and over and over again. Jesus, once and in com- one time, he completed our need for grace. He imputed his righteousness to us. So if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees the righteous deeds of Jesus. He doesn't see your sin. Because on the cross, Jesus took our sin, and God punished him for that. And so I, just, I wanted to point that out, that this is very clearly a picture of justification by imputation. So if you hear someone teaching infusion, that's not from the Bible. That's incorrect. Um, As Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Joshua is is cleansed. He's he's given this clean turban. And then we move on to verses 6 and 7, where it says this. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua... Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. And so we've seen a picture of what theologians call justification. And now what we see in verses 6 and 7 is we see a picture of what theologians call sanctification. Okay, justification is a legal declaration by the judge of not guilty. Right, So the people of Christ are not guilty because they are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's justification. But now in these two verses, 6 and 7, we see a picture of sanctification. And I I think sometimes uh, we can be confused and think that because we're saved by grace, uh, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live our lives. But that's clearly not true because verses 6 and 7 say that uh, Joshua is given a charge here. He's called to live in obedience. He's called to walk in accordance with the path uh, and, and walk in the ways that God has called him to walk. And so as Christians, sanctification is actually something that we're called to participate in. Um, we don't save ourselves, but we are called to participate. You never earn grace, but the Christian life does require effort. And so salvation is, is not about earn, but sanctification does require effort. Right? That's why in Philippians 3, Paul says, I strain, right? I, I strain with everything I've got for the upward prize of the call of Christ Jesus. Right? He says, not that I've already obtained it, but I press on. Right? That press on language, it's effort. The Christian life does take effort. But it's, it's not effort to earn an identity, it's effort from an identity. You see, in, in the Christian life, indicatives always come before imperatives. Who you are always comes before what you're called to do. And so Joshua is uh, given this new identity. He's, he's made the high priest. He's clothed in righteousness that's not his own. And then only after he's been given this new identity, after he's been saved by grace, is he called to live a new life, a new life of obedience. And it's the same for us. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So there is a call for obedience in the Christian life. But it's not that we work to earn God's favor. It's rather that we work from the favor that we've already been given. And so that's the picture we see here in in verses 6 and 7. And then um, 
finally, we'll, we'll get to the, the final point here. Uh, we've, we've seen the courtroom, we've seen the clothes, and now we look at the coming king. Uh, look with me at verses 8 through 10. Zechariah says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on a stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And so, in verse, in verse 8 here, the Lord says uh, to Joshua, the high priest, who's the representative of, of all the people, he says, Joshua, you're a sign. You and the priests that are around you, you're a sign. And so, the question might be, what is he a sign of? Well, the verse continues to talk about this branch and then this stone. Okay, and, and these are symbols. So, so we sort of have three symbols here. The priests are a sign of something. And then the branch is a, is a symbolic sign of something. And then this stone is a sign of something in the passage. Um, and so uh, to, to get a little bit clearer picture of, of what is being talked about, or, or rather who is being talked about here, uh, let's go to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 talks about this branch, this branch of David. Um, and he calls it the, the root or the shoot from the stump of Jesse. And in verse uh, 1, it says this, Therefore, uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, he shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide, decide disputes by what his ear hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness shall be the belt of his loins. Jeremiah 23 also talks about this, this branch that is being talked about in Zechariah. Uh, in Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So what, Je what Jeremiah is saying is there's going to be a, a branch, a, a branch that comes from David. Basically what he's saying is there's going to be a descendant of David and he will reign as king like David did. But he will be even better than David. And his name will be the Lord is our righteousness. So who's the branch? Isaiah 9 speaks about this branch when it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The branch is Jesus. So Joshua and, and those that sit around him, they are a sign of the coming better high priest. Joshua is a high priest who represents Israel, but he's only a symbol of the coming greater high priest Jesus. Uh, the name Joshua, when, when transliterated into English, it, it's actually the same name as Jesus. So in this passage, you have a high priest whose name is Yahweh saves, and he's a sign of the coming high priest, the greater high priest, Jesus. Uh, 
whose name is Yeshua. Yahweh saves. Jesus is the branch. Jesus is the true and better David. And then we have this picture of a stone, uh, a single stone with seven eyes, and it has an engraved inscription. And then it says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That's verse 9 of of Zechariah 3. So uh, the stone, I'm I'm not totally sure what it is because commentators disagree. Some people think it's the stone that would be in the center of the turban of the high priest. Uh, there was an inscription on a stone that was placed in the center of the turban, and it said, Holy unto the Lord. And it was a symbol of the high priest. Uh, so that's possible. The stone that's being talked about in verse 9, it, it, might be, um, it might be the stone that would be in the middle of the turban. However, lots of commentators also think that this is taking place in uh, the temple, in the ruins of the temple. That this scene is taking place in the ruins of the temple, and that's why God says, I will give you access and I will give you charge over my courts if you will walk in my ways to Joshua. Um, and so some commentators think that the stone is actually the cornerstone of the temple because Zechariah is calling the people uh, in the book of Zechariah to rebuild the temple. So I'm not totally sure if the stone is the cornerstone of the temple or if it's the stone that would be in the center of the turban of the high priest. But I can't help but think that there's a connection here to another stone that's talked about in the Old Testament, right? Because Isaiah 28 says this, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not be in haste. First Peter, talking about the same thing in chapter 2, says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. So the honor is to you who believe, but to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So we have, we have this uh, symbol of the priesthood, we have this symbol of the branch, And then we have this symbol of the stone. And all of these things are pointing forward to what it says at the end of verse 9 of Zechariah 3. The Lord of hosts declares, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. You know what day that is. It's the day that Jesus set his face like flint. And he walked the cross. And when he was hung on the tree, he said, it is finished. And on that day, he took all of our sin and all of our shame. And he cast it as far away from us as the east is from the west. And he clothed us in pure garments, not our own. And he made us a kingdom of priests to himself. What what God is doing for Joshua in Zechariah 3 is just just an echo. It's just a shadow of what Jesus was going to do for us in the New Testament. This is just just a, a pale glimmer of what God is planning to do in the coming kingdom of his branch, in the coming kingdom of Jesus. And so uh, I'll, I'll end here with this. Revelation 5, verses 5 through 7 says, And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, 
And among the elders, I saw the lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, like the seven eyes on the stone, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. Behold the branch. He will reign as king forevermore. He is the great king, greater than David. He is the great priest, greater than Joshua. He has robed us in pure garments, not our own. He has taken our sin. And he has drank the cups of the the wrath of God to the dregs so that we might live no longer under the iniquity of our sin, but freed and saved forevermore. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence today. And Lord, I just thank you for the gift of your grace. Lord, I thank you for the uh, immense, overwhelming beauty of your love and your sacrifice for us. Lord Jesus, you said that no man has any greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Thank you that you have called us friends. Lord, when we hear the voice of condemnation, help us to run to the cross. Remind us of yourself. Remind us of your sacrifice. Bring us down to the dust in humility and then raise us to the skies in the joy of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.